0: You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, great to be back with you on a Sunday morning. President's Day weekend, the holiday weekend. Snowy conditions, at least on the ground, outside in the New York City metropolitan area. Kind of a little bit of a pause in the local sports schedule this weekend. Spring training yet to completely ramp up. The football season, or the football offseason, in the books for a week already. The NBA All-Star break going on. All-Star Saturday night. Yesterday, a couple of Knicks prominently featured, Jalen Brunson and Jacob Toppin. And center stage today, in the middle of February, is the Stadium Series and the NHL and the latest installment of the rivalry between the New York Rangers and the New York Islanders. If you heard the update at the top of the hour, it was quite a scene last night. At MetLife Stadium, 70,000-plus fans in attendance to see the Devils beat the Flyers 6-3 in a game that, yes, the pomp and circumstance is cool. The outdoor atmosphere of the game is cool. Frigid, in fact, if you're talking in terms of temperature. It was also a very important game in the standings, as is today's game between the Rangers and the Islanders, which makes it even more special because it's more than just a spectacle. Yes, it's a fantastic game scene, but we have fewer than 30 games remaining in the regular season for all of these teams. The Rangers have the longest current winning streak in the NHL at six consecutive games, and after they played kind of mediocre hockey for about a month, month and a half in December into January, they seem to be back on track atop the Metropolitan Division and cruising towards a spot in the playoffs. As for the Islanders, who face the Rangers today at 3 p.m., They're still trying to figure things out in their new world under head coach Patrick Waugh. So it'll be a great scene out there at MetLife Stadium today, as it was last night for the Devils and the Flyers, and a very important game for both of these teams. We'll have Kenny Albert, who'll be on the call for us right here at uh, 3 o'clock when the game starts. Kenny will join me at the top of next hour to set the scene. I I texted with Kenny yesterday, asked him to come on, because off the top of my head... I can't think of another play-by-play broadcaster in the NHL who would have called more outdoor games than Kenny. The only one that I can think of is Doc Emmerich, who did a lot of those games for NBC when they kind of started up about 20 years ago, and it was always the featured game on New Year's Day, and Doc Emmerich was usually behind the mic. But Kenny Albert now is the voice of the NHL on TNT, uh, as well as the Rangers' voice for many, many years. And the Rangers have played in a lot of these games, and they haven't lost any of them yet. You know, they they won two games at Yankee Stadium in 2014 against the Devils and the Islanders. They won in Philadelphia at Citizens Bank Park against the Flyers in 2012. They won at City Field in overtime against the Sabres. I believe that was back in 2018. And the Rangers are back on the ice again outdoors against the Islanders this afternoon. We'll have coverage... Here on 98.7 ESPN New York, starting at 2.30. Don LaGreca with pregame from ice level. Not up in the press box for Donnie today. Down, braving the elements, ice level. So make sure you tune into that. Um, there is baseball news. Spoke a lot about the Yankees during my show yesterday. Didn't get into the Mets too much, although we did hear from Pete Alonso as he had spoken during the course of the day for the first time upon reporting to spring training. And right now... When you look at the Yankees and Mets, the overarching theme is this. There's not a lot of juice. There's not a lot of buzz. There's not a lot of excitement surrounding either of these two teams. Now, there's a couple of factors. Number one, the football season just ended. We had a great Super Bowl. Um, It's an important offseason for the Giants and the Jets. So... And, and full rosters for Major League Baseball have not yet reported to spring training. Right now, it's officially pitchers and catchers. The rest of the rosters are on their way very, very shortly, although most players are already there now, um, just not in an official capacity. Number two, the Knicks are a big reason why people aren't locked in. I mean, just think about this is how special this Knicks season has been and hopefully continues to be. And this is also a testament to how great of a coach Tom Thibodeau is. Now in his fourth season in charge of the Knicks, because think about how many times during the calendar year we got to this very weekend, president's day weekend, the middle of February. It's always known as the slowest time on the sports calendar. You know, right around the corner, we have the NCAA tournament, first the conference tournaments and then the NCAA tournament. And that grabs our attention. Spring training games are going to start a week from now. Um, but here in New York, for how many years, this part of the calendar was kind of a wasteland for the NBA because from 2014 until 2020, when Tom Thibodeau arrived here, the Knicks season, unfortunately, was already decided in that they were not going to make the playoffs again. And I think the biggest reason why people aren't locked in yet on baseball spring training being here is the fact that once the All-Star break ends and the NBA season resumes and the Knicks have 27 games left and a few question marks in terms of injuries and health and who's going to be available to play, it is all systems go for the Knicks down the stretch. And to be honest with you, when you look at it in terms of the baseball teams, I think that could be a blessing in disguise. Look, if you're not, if you're a top team, a top contending team, You know, last year, for example, and they weren't a top contending team, but last year the Giants were a playoff team and they won a playoff game and they were one of the last eight teams standing in the NFL playoffs. The fans and the attention will find you when you perform at that level. But if you're a team that is not quite ready to perform at that high, high level, then you don't necessarily want or need the attention until it's absolutely unavoidable. And I think the Yankees and the Mets are in that scenario right now, and I think that's fine with them, and I think it should be fine with them. And it's a rarity, especially for the Yankees, because they're the Yankees. They're the biggest brand in baseball. They're the biggest brand in sports. They play in the biggest market. Historically, they're the most successful franchise. But lately, the Mets have also found that spotlight, especially last year. I mean, just think back 12 months ago to how we were discussing this Mets team. It was coming off of a playoff season that almost led to a division title. Disappointing finish, but overall, just a very successful season. One of the most successful seasons in the history of that franchise, led by the manager of the year in Buck Showalter. And then the offseason that followed, the fortification of the roster, Steve Cohen showing off his financial might, backing up all of the hopes of Mets fans that once Cohen was in charge as the owner, he would spare no expense to put a winner on the field. And that was the feeling surrounding the Mets last off season as they prepared to go into the year with the highest payroll in the history of Major League Baseball. And then you look to where we are now with the Mets and how much things have changed. And it is magnified by the biggest story in New York baseball right now, and that is the uncertain future of Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso if you're listing if you're listing the baseball stars in New York City right now he's definitely in the top 3 maybe in the top 2 it's probably between him and Garrett Cole for that second spot and um you know I, I'm not fully counting Juan Soto yet because he hasn't really introduced himself to the New York baseball fan. But Judge is definitely number one, and it's Alonzo or Garrett Cole for number two. In terms of performance, it's Cole, but Alonso has more of that personality that is appealing to fans that contributes to the star power. Either way, he is one of the biggest three stars in baseball in New York right now, and all he has done as a homegrown player and making his major league debut In 2019, all he has done is play virtually every game and produce huge power numbers. The best in the sport, in fact, over the stretch of five years, produce power numbers every single season. And now here we are as we begin the 2024 campaign. The Mets are faced with the real possibility that Pete Alonso could be entering his final season in a Mets uniform at the age of 29. And that's just not how this script was supposed to play out. And we don't know how it's going to play out. It's not fait accompli, but and we'll play some of the cuts from Alonso yesterday of what he had to say upon reporting to spring training. But from the original tone of his comments, it doesn't sound like he is all in on returning to the Mets. He gave very mixed messages, and wishy-washy answers. In fact, let's get to it right now. We got Tom and Harvey producing the show today. Guys, let's hear the cut when Alonzo was asked if he wants to be a lifelong Met.
1: I mean, for me, I think that number one goal is just being healthy through the, uh, through the course of the year. I, I love it here. I definitely have envisioned myself of, of being a lifelong Met. That's a That's something I've definitely thought about. And I love love New York. It's a really special place uh, for my family and I. And I've definitely thought of the idea. I've definitely welcomed the idea. But I can't predict the future. For me, I just want to focus on on this season. I just want to be the best person I can be. And I've sat back and and listened and just want to be the the best player I can be. That's it. If
0: if you're a Mets fan who has followed this guy his entire career, and how could you not be a fan of him? He's carried himself well. He's performed. He's played virtually every single game. He's been basically everything you want a homegrown star player to be for any franchise in any sport. But if you're a Mets fan and you hear that, how can you not be concerned that he's not all in? Now, here's the thing. Pete Alonso is now under the... Tutelage represented by Scott Boris, and those comments sound like they are straight out of the Scott Boris school of not giving away too much information because perhaps it could hurt you in negotiations. It's such a funny negotiation tactic, isn't it? And this is in all businesses. We're we're trained – as you know, humans, as employees of whatever company, if you're looking for a raise, if you're looking for a promotion, if you're looking for a better opportunity, we are all trained to act like we don't really want to be there because if you're in a situation that you want to be in and you show too much enthusiasm about that situation and too much excitement about being in that situation, then that could actually be held against you by those who are responsible for compensating you. It's kind of a sick, psychological thing that we all have to deal with in this world, including Major League Baseball. And look, Pete Alonso's going to be fine either way. I mean, right now, he's on a one-year, $20.5 million arbitration deal that would take him into free agency. He's going to be fine no matter what. Whether he re-signs with the Mets, whether he signs somewhere else, he's going to be rich beyond his wildest dreams. But the fact is, Also is Pete Alonso has millions and probably tens of millions of dollars at stake, which is why he is parsing his words so carefully. And it's clear right off the bat that he doesn't want to give the Mets or Mets management the upper hand at all. And that's very unfortunate because, and I made this point yesterday on my show, all we want as sports fans in any sport is to have a homegrown athlete develop him, cultivate him, and see him turn into something greater than he was when we originally drafted him. And Pete Alonso fits that description to a T. And for the Mets, with the owner who we have heard and said hundreds of times over the last two or three years, has the deepest pockets in the entire sport, for them to actually have one of those guys – and not be able to bring him back, there's something inherently wrong with that situation. Now, there's a lot of factors at play. Obviously, there's Steve Cohen, there's David Stearns, who is now calling the shots. There's Pete Alonzo and Scott Boris and what they bring to the table, specifically Boris and his negotiation style. And then the biggest factor, I think, is what happened last year. The disaster of 2023 has shifted this entire franchise on its axis and changed the way Steve Cohen and the Mets have done business like 180 degrees. And was that, com- was last year a disappointment and a disaster? It absolutely was. But was it absolutely necessary to shift the entire focus? of the organization and the way they do business based on one disappointing season? I don't think that it was. Were changes necessary? Yes. But wholesale changes where it appears that you're starting to operate like a smaller market franchise where David Stearns came from, he was in charge of the Milwaukee Brewers for many years and had a lot of success there, those are the Milwaukee Brewers. These are the New York Mets. With the richest owner in professional sports. It is not an apples to apples comparison. Yet it seems to me that the Mets are operating as if they are a smaller market franchise, and it all goes back to last year. We'll get into the path that led the Mets to Pete Alonso possibly not coming back next season. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. I mean, it seems like we always have one of these questions in New York. I mean, first of all, we have nine professional teams in the New York metropolitan area. So the chances of an athlete, a star level athlete being faced with this type of decision um, are increased over a market that has perhaps three or four professional franchises. Uh, In recent years, obviously, we had Aaron Judge. Um, we had Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones last year. We're gearing up for another offseason of Saquon Barkley asking himself that question. But right now, it's Pete Alonso. And uh, he has the mantle at this moment of the star player in New York who it is undecided whether or not he will remain with his current team beyond this season while he's in his prime. And I'll get to this in a minute, but My my first thought on this is this is common in sports for a player to outgrow what the expectations for him were. But the problem that I have with sports and the finances of sports, unfortunately, that sometimes turns into a bad thing. You know, Pete Alonzo was drafted in the second round in 2016 by the Mets. He was the 64th overall pick. I don't think they ever envisioned anybody did, clearly because there were 63 picks made ahead of him. I don't think the thought was that he was going to turn into the most consistent right-handed power hitter in the major leagues over a five-year stretch, but he has. And if you are fortunate enough... To have that guy on your team, you should be able to keep him. Now, a lot of times franchises are unable to do that. But those are franchises that play in Tampa and in Oakland and in Pittsburgh and in Milwaukee. Those aren't franchises that play in New York. This is New York. This is what you want. 1-800-919-3776. Let's talk about it with you. We will open up the phones now and start off with Subi in Midtown. Good morning, Subi.
1: Hey, Pat, I just wanted to hit on the obvious Mets points here and compare the Cohen era to maybe the Wilpon era. The Wilpon era actually spent money when they had to. They spent on Santana, and you know even when David Wright was in, they made the investment to give him a contract, even though he didn't play it out. So I'm just wondering why they didn't lock up Pete, earlier in the season or even last year when all the other teams uh, invest in their young players. And it seems like they picked the wrong player. They picked Lindor over everyone else. They gave him a bad contract, and then you're stuck with his sort of, you don't know if he's a clubhouse leader or he's just uh, collecting a paycheck. I think it's more of the a little bit of a combination of both. But I'm just wondering who the clubhouse leaders are going to be if it's not Alonzo, and if they're going to bank on these young prospects who, uh, like you said, a low-market team would do, not a high-market team would do. So I'm just wondering what what they're trying to go after. They're trying to be like the Brewers, or they're trying to be like more of the Dodgers, even the Braves at this point. That's all I got to say.
0: It's a good question, Subi. Thanks for making the call this morning. I think Steve Cohen, because of what happened last year and it was so jarring to him, I think he's really in a stage right now where he's not 100% sure how to do this he did it one specific way the last couple of years he had some immediate success when they won 101 games two years ago under Buck Showalter but then they fell apart the last weekend of the regular season or the last week of the regular season and then they flamed out in the wild card round of the playoffs so he just kind of doubled down and did that again and last year not only did it not go well It was a disaster. I mean, you could argue it was the biggest disaster in the history of professional sports. And by that, I mean the Mets last year had the highest payroll in Major League Baseball history of $343 million, and it resulted in a 75-87 and record. You almost can't do worse than that. The Mets last year spent $65 million more than the next highest spending team, which was the Yankees. $65 million, by the way, was more than the entire payroll of the Oakland A's. So the gap between the Mets and the second highest spending team was greater than the entire payroll of one different Major League Baseball franchise. And that led to a 75-87 and record. How did we get here? With Pete Alonso's future uncertain, I really do think that last year it changed the trajectory of how this franchise does business because as we saw before with the Lindor contract, with the spending before last season, the Mets would do whatever it takes. They would spend whatever is necessary under Steve Cohen. They would have the final say on all transactions across Major League Baseball because their owner has the deepest pockets. And for years, for decades, the Mets fan had to stand aside and watch the Yankees under George Steinbrenner be in that position. For years, any star player who hit the open market would shop himself around, he would get his best offer, and then right before signing that contract, they would check in with George Steinbrenner. And if the owner's whims on that particular day decided that he wanted that player more, then he would sign that player. And that's how it worked in Major League Baseball for years, and it frustrated the hell out of Mets fans. Why wouldn't it? Well, now that the Mets had Steve Cohen as their owner, they were the ones in position to have the final say, all transactions were going to run through Queens, but last year did not work out, right? The money that Steve Cohen spent was not wisely distributed, and as a result, the Mets were never able to get any traction early in the season. I mean, let's go through last year. They got off to a good start. They were 14 and seven. There were some red flags, but they were 14 and seven. So no one really thought that there were any major concerns. They were still 30 and 27 in June. They were keeping their head above water despite dealing with a bunch of significant injuries. Verlander started the season late. They didn't have Jose Quintana. We know they didn't have Edwin Diaz for the entire year. But in June, at 30 and 27, you're still squarely in the mix. But then they went on this seven game losing streak to Toronto, Atlanta, and Pittsburgh. And the last night they spent above 500 the entire season, June 3rd, they went to bed that night with a record of 30 and 29. That was the last night last season that they were above 500. Now you look at their roster construction last year $43 million on Scherzer. He had a 4.0 ERA, he was inconsistent. He was injured, and he also served a suspension during the four months that he was part of the team. Verlander, $43 million salary, didn't make his season debut until May 4th. He didn't really hit his stride until late June. Once he did, it was very good, but by then it was too late. The Mets had already fallen off. You spent $9 million on Eduardo Escobar, who gave you a 695 OPS in 38 games at third base. We know what happened with Edwin Diaz, for whom you were paying $20 million. He didn't even play because of his injury suffered in the World Baseball Classic celebration. $13 million for Jose Quintana, who didn't make his season debut until after the All-Star break and gave you just 13 starts. So if you look at just those six guys, that's not even counting. Sorry, those are five guys. If you look at those five guys, and that's not even counting guys who underperformed. We'll get to those guys in a moment because that happens. That's part of baseball. But if you look at Scherzer, Verlander, Escobar, Diaz, Quintana, those five guys were paid $128.7 million last season. If you take that as an entire Major League Baseball franchise and that's your payroll, that would be the 18th ranked payroll In the sport, ahead of Minnesota, who made the playoffs, ahead of the Diamondbacks, who went to the World Series, ahead of the Rays, who won 99 games, ahead of the Orioles, who won 101 games. The Mets spent more money on Scherzer, Verlander, Escobar, Diaz, and Quintana than those playoff teams that I just mentioned spent on their entire rosters. And the Mets got virtually nothing to show for it from those five guys. Diaz didn't play. Quintana didn't play until the Mets were out of it. Escobar gave you very little. Verlander didn't give you anything consistent until late June when the Mets were already starting to fall out of it. And Scherzer was the biggest disappointment of them all because of what he was being paid and the inconsistency that he showed. And then you had the other guys. Look. It wasn't just those five guys. I mean, Jeff McNeil won the batting title the year before. His average dropped 56 points last year. Pete Alonso, I know the power numbers were there, as they always are, but his batting average dropped 54 points. Starling Marte's average dropped 44 points. He played in 85 games. Daniel Vogelbach was supposed to be your DH. His average dropped 22 points. Your power source gave you 13 homers and 48 RBIs in 104 games played. I know batting average is not that important in Major League Baseball anymore, and I know some people will say it's not important at all. I'll say this. When your batting average falls 56 points or 54 points or 44 points, it matters because you're not replacing those base hits with walks and getting on base. You're just being less productive. Those are stark, severe drops in productivity for guys who the Mets were counting on last season. And all of that contributed to what happened the last week of July, when Cohen's frustrations finally boiled over. The Mets pulled the plug on July 27th when they traded David Robertson. At the time, the record was 48-54. and 54. They were hanging In the wild card race, if you would even consider that to be true, by a thread. They traded Robertson on July 27th. They traded Scherzer on July 30th. They traded Verlander and Tommy Pham on August 1st. Now, they did restock the farm system, something that had not been prioritized for years. You got Luis Angelicuna. You got Drew Gilbert. You got Ryan Clifford. You got Mario Vargas. Those are four of your top 10 prospects right now. So I I think the byproduct of the sell-off at the trade deadline could ultimately be beneficial to the franchise, but last year was such a disaster. The highest payroll in Major League Baseball history resulting in a 75-87 and record. And like I said... The Mets thought when Cohen took over, the Mets fans thought that this is how business is going to be. We want Lindor. Let's get Lindor. We want Scherzer. We want Verlander. Let's get those guys. We could pay more than anyone else can. And after decades of Mets fans seeing everything run through the Bronx, the buck would finally stop in Queens. And unfortunately, the buck lasted one more year in Queens before... Walter was scapegoated after last season, and David Stearns was brought in to run everything. Now, the way that Stearns is operating right now, it's still very early. Is this the right way to operate if you are the Mets franchise in the biggest market in Major League Baseball with the owner with the deepest pockets and all of this financial might? I'm not 100% sure. A, I'm not 100% sure what the plan is. B, what I think the plan is so far... I'm not 100% sure that's the best course of action. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
1: I still think expectations are high. You know, I think obviously the goal is, you know, get back to the playoffs. And, you know, once you're in the playoffs, anything can happen. So, you know, last year wasn't what we wanted to happen. You know, I think everyone here is, you know, hungry and motivated. And hopefully we can get back to the playoffs this year.
0: That's Jeff McNeil down in Port St. Lucie this week. As the Mets are trickling into camp pitchers and catchers, of course, have already reported McNeil, one of a host of Mets who took a step backwards last season. I mean, two years ago when they won 101 games, he led all of Major League Baseball with a 326 batting average. He had an 836 OPS and he was named an all-star for the second time in his career in 2022. Last year, the average dips from 326 to 270. The OPS goes from 836 to 711. And McNeil, one of many important pieces to that Mets lineup, who took a step backwards last year and contributed to 75 and 87. And it really was a a reckoning for Mets owner Steve Cohen. And and I'm not sure, in fact, I shouldn't say I'm not sure, I don't think that Cohen needs to completely change the way he did his business leading into last season. I think a lot of things were circumstance, most notably the Edwin Diaz injury. Who could have predicted that from happening And that really just set the tone of what ended up being a downward spiral for the entire season. I mean, Cohen learned that it's not as easy as just rolling out the balls, or in this case, opening up the wallet and letting them play. And now that David Stearns is in charge, it seems like a complete reversal in philosophy. Stearns comes in with an impressive resume, four straight playoff appearances with the Brewers, Doing that while not overspending. However, in Milwaukee, overspending is not an option. In New York, it is an option. And it can be a useful resource if done correctly. I don't think that it's something you need to completely rule out. And like I said earlier... And I keep coming back to this as it pertains to Pete Alonzo. The thing that all organizations want to do in sports is draft a player, develop him, and have him become something better than he was projected to be. And not only is that the case with Alonzo, he's a star. He's one of the stars of Major League Baseball. A second-round pick in 2016 made his debut in 2019. He's been a star ever since. That's half a decade of star caliber play in New York. And sometimes in sports, teams develop these types of players, but they're unable to hold on to them. So they trade them for prospects, and they bring in new players to develop to try to stay competitive. And the ones who do it well are able to remain competitive year after year after year. And the greatest example of that are the Tampa Bay Rays. But the Tampa Bay Rays have to operate like that because they draw... 18,000 fans a game. They're in a crummy stadium in a not-so-desirable part of town, and they have never been a marquee franchise with deep pockets, so they've had to do it a certain way. None of that pertains to the Mets, who play in the biggest market. When they're good, they draw thirty-five to forty to 45,000 fans a game, and they now, for the last three years, have the richest owner, not only in the sport, but in all of sports. Washington, Washington. Pittsburgh, Oakland, these are teams that haven't been able to retain homegrown stars in recent years. The Mets should not be on that list. Now, people always point to, and we're going back a generation, but I know a lot of people listening remember these teams. Obviously, they were some of the most prominent teams in the history of the sport. The New York Yankees, of the late 1990s and the early 2000s. Those were teams whose payrolls were always among the top in the sport, and ultimately they settled in as the highest payroll in the sport for a very, very, very long time. Back then, when the Yankees were winning three straight championships and four championships in five years, and going to the World Series five times in a six-year span, and winning divisions every single year— The knee-jerk reaction across Major League Baseball was that the Yankees just opened up their wallet and bought players and brought in whoever they wanted to do. But if you look at the Yankees of that era, when they were actually winning World Series championships, that's not how they were operating. The Yankees were winning championships with a core, no pun intended, Of homegrown players. Now, the difference between the Yankees then or now and a team like the Rays or the Pirates or even the Nationals who decided to trade Juan Soto before he came up on free agency. By the way, the Nationals did offer him a huge contract, but that's besides the point. The difference between those Yankees and those other franchises and smaller markets that I mentioned is that the Yankees had the ability to re-sign their stars. So as the Yankees' payroll continued to climb and settle in, as the highest payroll in the entire sport, it was because they were re-signing to lucrative contracts players who they originally drafted and developed. Derek Jeter, Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada. Now, that is where the Mets need to operate. I'm not sitting here and condoning the Mets and Steve Cohen and David Stearns to... Just you know, sit up on a podium and look at every single available free agent who walks by and sign the ones that you want for as much money as they want. No, that's not a smart way of doing business. But what gives teams like the Mets an advantage, the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, we know all of the franchises in the big markets, the Giants, the Phillies, the Red Sox. What gives those teams the advantage is that when you do find a guy and draft him and develop him and cultivate him and he turns into a star, you have the financial wherewithal to be able to re-sign him and keep him as part of your organization. And if Pete Alonzo doesn't fit that description, I don't know what is. You know, my question is, what are we doing here if Alonzo is not part of the future? Of this Mets franchise. Because here's a guy who fits the description. Of everything a fan base or a front office would want. Homegrown guy. Turns into a star. um, Leader in the clubhouse. Okay. Um, Has been great in the community. Very accessible with the media. And with the fans. I mean he checks checks all the boxes. For a franchise that has the ability to re-sign him. Okay, I don't understand the motivation to not want to do that. And that's why it's going to be very interesting to see. That is the backdrop with which the Mets start the 2024 baseball season. Now, as I said yesterday, every single year, it's like clockwork. Every single year, there are sometimes a handful of teams, but at least one or two teams that there are very small expectations for. And all of a sudden, they're in the playoffs. And all of a sudden, they're winning rounds in the playoffs. And in some cases, they're in the World Series. I mean, the Philadelphia Phillies are a great recent example. You know, Two years ago, when Joe Girardi was their manager and was fired a third of the way through the season, it looked like this era of Phillies baseball spending a lot of money on free agents like JT Realmuto and, of course, Bryce Harper, and not necessarily seeing the results, it looked like that era had passed them by. And something clicked when Rob Thompson took over and they went to the World Series two years ago. They went to the NLCS last year and probably should have gone to the World Series. And that is more common in Major League Baseball than it is in sports like the NBA or the NHL. Okay, Can the Mets be one of those teams this year? I do think they can because if you actually look at the roster, as disappointing as last year was... There is talent on the roster. All of those guys I just named, the McNeils and the Alonzos and the Martes, who underperformed last season, is that what they're going to be? Or are they going to be what they were two years ago? Okay, we don't know. And that's where we are with the Mets right now. There are a lot of ifs, and there are a lot of scenarios in which this could be a good season. But the Alonzo question is going to continue to hang over this franchise all season long. It's his turn. There's always someone in New York, whether it's a Nick, whether it's a Yankee, whether it's a Giant or a Jet, well, Pete Alonso, tag, you're it, heading into the 2024 season. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, Pat O'Keefe back with you, 98.7 ESPN New York, here till noon, Larry Hardesty after me, and then Rangers Hockey, From MetLife Stadium, starting at 2.30, Don LaGreca, the pregame coverage, Kenny Albert and Dave Maloney on the call starting at 3. Had Dave on the show yesterday to talk about the game. Kenny is coming up in a little less than 10 minutes. He'll be with me at the top of the hour to kind of set the scene at MetLife Stadium for what should be a, a terrific scene this afternoon. It was a great one last night. The Devils and the Flyers in the stadium series, the first game of the two. Devils scored 30 seconds into the game. Nico Hischier, the captain. Um, Jersey goes on to win 6-3 in front of 70,000 fans. And as I said at the beginning of the show, the um, what do we have, a little breaking news here? Juan Soto just walked into uh, the Yankees' clubhouse. All right, position players report tomorrow. So there we go. Juan Soto in Tampa. Um, hopefully we'll hear from him in the next couple of days, get... Uh, Our first look at him in pinstripes uh, as he is in Tampa, as players are uh, set to report tomorrow. The full rosters will be there tomorrow, and they have spring training games starting next weekend. Um, The cool thing about these stadium series games coming at this point in the season, these are hugely important games for all four teams playing. Um... Especially, look, the, the Flyers are one of the top three teams in the metropolitan division right now. The Devils who won last night and the Islanders who faced the Rangers today, they are fighting for their postseason lives, and they are both very much in the mix. Those were two huge points that the Devils picked up yesterday. They moved to within five games of the uh, five points, excuse me, of the Flyers, and the Devils still have two games in hand on third place Philadelphia. Meanwhile, the Islanders are. In terms of the wild card race in the Eastern Conference, five points behind Detroit, and the Islanders have a game in hand against the Red Wings. So the Devils, who won yesterday, the Islanders, who take on the Rangers today, still very much in the mix. For the Rangers, 28 games remaining in the regular season. Isles have 29 games, including today. Rangers sit on top of the Metropolitan Division, riding a six game winning streak. They have that goalie tandem of Jonathan Quick and Igor Shosturkin, both of whom are playing extremely well. Shosturkin has had his ups and downs during this year, and part of that is the expectations for a multiple-time All-Star and a former Vezina Trophy winner who's been among the best in the sport since assuming the role from Henrik Lundqvist four years ago. Um, But his last start, if that's any indication, and Dave Maloney said it very succinctly with me yesterday. You're as good as your last start. Well, if that's true, then Igor Shesterkin's in a good place right now because on Monday he shut out the Calgary Flames two to nothing. So the Rangers are in first place right now. If you look at the playoffs as they project at this moment, and this is tough, the top wild card team in the Eastern Conference is the Tampa Bay Lightning. That would be, if the season were to end today, that would be the Rangers' first round matchup. So after this terrific regular season, that they've pretty much gone wire to wire on top of the Metropolitan Division. They got out of the gates extremely quickly, leveled off for about a month, month and a half, but kept their heads above water. And now they're rolling again on this six-game winning streak. And what that has resulted in is a first-round matchup against the Tampa Bay Lightning, one of the most tried-and-true and experienced playoff teams in the entire NHL. So, look, those scenarios could change multiple times between now and the end of the regular season. But that'll be this afternoon at MetLife Stadium, the Rangers and the Islanders. And, of course, you can catch all the coverage right here on 98.7 ESPN New York, starting at 2.30. We had All-Star Saturday night last night, which you heard here on ESPN New York. The Slam Dunk Contest, a repeat winner, Mac McClung of the G League's Osceola Magic. Um... A three-point contest repeat as well. Damian Lillard outlasting Carl Anthony Towns and Trey Young. You had the Stefan versus Sabrina three-point showdown, which was terrific. Both players acquitted themselves extremely well. I think that went great. Jalen Brunson participated in the three-point shootout, and tonight he will participate in his first-ever NBA All-Star game. We'll talk about that, and up next we'll talk about the stadium series and preview that with Kenny Albert here on ESPN New York.